Well, lovely to be together this evening. Do have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 6 uh, that we just had read for us a moment ago. I guess many of us have grown up in life only really ever knowing peacetime. Yet God says we are at war. We follow Jesus, the Prince of Peace, yet he calls us to fight. The battle that rages is not just for a time, but we're in the fight of our lives. These are the kinds of realities that Ephesians 6 lays before us this evening. You'll have noticed from our reading just a moment ago that this passage is full of images from the battlefields. There's talk of strength and struggle, of standing firm and standing your ground. There's talk of armour and power and shields and swords and arrows. I wonder who are we fighting in this war? Well, as we look at Ephesians 6, we're going to see we're not fighting against circumstance primarily. Our great enemy of the day is not COVID-19, despite all the challenges it brings to us. And we're also going to see that we're not fighting against people. The great enemy in this war, Paul writes, is not our friend who's out every Friday night, maybe getting drunk. It's not our local politician who's got some kind of anti-God agenda. It's not the devout Muslim who's praying in the mosque in Manchester or Malaysia, wherever it might be. No, chapter 6, verse 12 makes that very plain. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, the book of Ephesians reminds us that the non-believer deserves our compassion, not our contempt. Just think for a moment how the book of Ephesians begins describing the realities that were true for ourselves before we came to put our trust in the Lord Jesus. Flick back with me to Ephesians 2 and verses 1 to 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That was our reality. We were dead in transgressions and sins. We were slaves to that sin. We faced God's wrath because of it. Therefore, the non-believers that we meet in life, they need to be delivered and not defeated. So who is our great enemy in this war? Well, again, we saw a moment ago in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, we we begin to to hear part of the answer to that question. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But of, of course, Paul goes on. He says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. To put it simply, Paul says our great enemy is the devil. Mentioned there at the end of verse 11, our enemy is the devil and the forces of evil that do his bidding. Chapter two, verse two in this letter, we're introduced to him as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's the spirit who's at work in those who are disobedience. In chapter four, verse 27, later in this letter, we're told the devil is the one who is desperate to come among God's people. He's looking for a foothold to take so he can come between us. Ephesians is a great reminder, friends, that we are in a war. The enemy is the devil. So how are we to fight this war? We're going to see three ways we should fight this evening from our passage in Ephesians chapter six. Firstly, we're to fight this war with 
confidence. We're to fight with confidence. Some of our fears in life, I guess, are totally irrational, aren't they? I've got four little children. Uh, one of them particularly is really scared of the dark at the moment. Um, if he's going to go upstairs and he knows that no one else is there and the lights aren't on, he'll ask his four-year-old little brother to go with him because he's worried there might be monsters upstairs when he gets there. You can imagine, of course, the four-year-old would have no problem taking down the monster if he was there. Maybe some of our fears are a bit like that, totally irrational. The enemy imagines. But then in other situations, of course, fear is understandable, isn't it? Because the enemy is real and the enemy is dangerous. I serve with the mission agency UFM. We have uh, some people serving in Myanmar. I guess you've been reading the reports about what's happening in that country since the military uh, coup took place a few weeks ago. Um, they're harrowing, aren't they, really, to read the reports of what's happening. No doubt even more harrowing, of course, to live through those events. You think about it for a moment. When you're armed with a, a hard hat from a DIY store and the enemy you're facing is armed with live ammunition, well, perhaps you're going to feel f- fear, aren't you? It's a normal response. It would be easy in that situation to feel outnumbered, outmaneuvered, outgunned. You know, friends, Ephesians 6 is a great reminder to us that our adversary is real and he is powerful and he is at work and he is seeking to devour and to destroy. I wonder how that makes you feel as you reflect on that reality. What are your chances as you, as you step into this battle? What are the odds that you might make it through? Our war is against the devil. We've got to be clear about this. Verse 12 describes that in more detail. We're fighting against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's our enemy. Now think about your church or think about your youth group or your student group and ask this question. Is this going to be a fair fight? Is this going to be a battle or is it going to be a massacre? When you read the reality of the enemy we face and you see how powerful he is and how destructive he can be, maybe you're tempted to run a mile. Well, let's dive into Ephesians a bit more and see why it is that we can be confident in this battle, even when the enemy is so very powerful. First thing to say, the battle we're in is not like a scene from Gladiator. Think about the Roman times. So they, the gladiator would be sent into the amphitheater and then the enemies would be released. The battle would ensue. The blood would be spilt. And of course, the ruler, well, the ruler was just sitting in the stands, taking it all in. That's not the kind of battle that God calls us to. He doesn't say, look, well, there's your enemy and, and here's your armor. So off you go. I'll be cheering you on from the sidelines. No, no. God fights with us. And he fights for us. This imagery we're going to come to in a moment about the armor of God. You know, Paul doesn't pluck it out of thin air. Now, this imagery comes from the New Testament, from the book of Isaiah. It's the imagery used of God's Messiah coming as a warrior. If you want to flick back with me, do turn to Isaiah chapter 59, verses 15 to 17. And you'll see some of this armor uh, described here. Halfway through Isaiah 59 and verse uh, verse 15. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. 
he saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. You see, as Jesus came to this earth and lived the life we could never live and died the death that we deserved. So the victory over the devil was won. Paul writes, doesn't he, in Colossians chapter three and verse 15, that having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Friends, Jesus was fighting this war long before we came along. Yes, the battle rages, but it's a war that Jesus Christ truly has already won. There's no doubt about who holds the upper hand here in this battle. Just flick back to chapter one and verses 18 to 22. And as I read these verses, ask yourself this question. Who is more powerful here? Who is more powerful? Chapter one, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Now listen to this, verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Who's most powerful here? There's no competition, is there? Jesus, he rules over Satan. Jesus reigns over Satan. Jesus looks down upon Satan. His victory is full. His victory is final. Chapter six, verse 10. Finally, therefore, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Friends, we fight this battle with confidence. The Lord has all power. And do you know what's really incredible? It's not just that we fight alongside a powerful God. No, this letter starts with an extraordinary reminder of the amazing reality that if we have turned from our sin and put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, not only is our sin forgiven. We are now found in Christ Jesus. The victory, therefore, that is his is also ours. And just as Christ rules above Satan there in chapter one, verse 21, then so do we because we're found in him. Incredible, isn't it? The power that raised Jesus from the dead, Ephesians 1 verse 20, is the same power at work in us. Therefore, friends, we have nothing to fear. So let's give ourselves to this battle. Your little church that looks so unimpressive so often, where maybe you struggle to get the PA going on a Sunday morning, or your youth group where the numbers are up and down and it's all a bit fragile, or your Christian union group where the committee members come and go and while the outside world looks on and maybe almost pities you. Friends, we can still fight with confidence because the power comes from him and not from ourselves. So there's the first way we're to fight. We are to fight with confidence. 
But then second, we're to fight never being complacent. We're to fight never being complacent. When the Allied forces were preparing for D-Day in the Second World War, uh, the stories tell us that they famously built a decoy army, inflatable tanks, uh, dummy landing craft, and the forces placed these uh, decoys all around the southeast coast of England. The idea being that the enemy would would think the invasion was going to come from Calais. The diversion seemed to work. The enemy was confused and they weren't prepared for where the attack would come from. You know, in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter six, we're told that the we're told to put on the full armor of God so we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. Yes, Satan might be defeated, but there's life in him yet, isn't there? So there's no place for complacency in our fights. Yet, you know, as we read Ephesians and as we look at Ephesians six in the context of the whole letter, we see there's also no surprise at all about where the attacks of Satan will come from. Let's think about this. Really important for us. You know, one of the great themes of this letter is that God is building a new humanity. It's clear for us in chapter two. Paul talks about the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile being destroyed, about how through the blood of Christ shed on the cross, he he makes it possible for us to be at peace with him and at peace with other people. Just have a look at chapter two and verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Incredible. And the result of that is a a church, a people we read of in chapter three, verse 10, who will make known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms the manifold wisdom of God. If you like, when Satan sees God's people living in unity and living distinctively, he gets a glimpse of what's to come for him. Someone has put it like this. It's as if Satan, defeated by the blood of Jesus on the cross, looks at the church and in seeing a picture of the future, realizes his days are numbered. And of course, he hates that, doesn't he? He hates it. He rails against it. Chapter six, verse 11, as he schemes against his people, we know exactly where he's going to attack. He'll attack our unity. That is how we love. And he'll attack our new, huma- our new humanity. That is how we live. Let's unpack those two things for a moment. First, he'll attack our unity. That is how we love one another. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul urges the believers to make every effort to maintain the unity that is ours in Christ Jesus. You see that in chapter four and verse three. Let me read on in chapter four and verse four. He says there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So we're urged to to make every effort to maintain the unity that's ours in Christ Jesus. Paul hits the same thing again at the end of chapter four, verses 30 to 32. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, 
forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Friends, the devil hates, he hates our expressions of unity because they speak to the world about the transforming power of the gospel. They speak of Satan's coming demise. So he will do everything to plot and to scheme to disrupt the unity you enjoy with your brothers and your sisters. So friends, be on your guard. He'd love to divide your next UBM team. He'd love it. And it might not take much. Someone takes great offence at a misguided comment and they won't let it go for the rest of the week. He'd love to divide your church and it might not take much. Someone upset when the preference that they have for the new paint job in the back hall goes another way. He'd love to divide your Christian union. Again, it might not take much. People not being very thoughtful when choosing the songs, when there's a room full of people from different church backgrounds. Do you know what? The devil is very good at this. He is really, really good at this. Guess like me, you've seen the carnage that results when the devil is given a foothold between believers. Relationships destroyed, time and attention distracted, our witness to the lost sidelined. Friends, we've got to stand firm. Verse 11, put on the full armour of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So he'll go for how we love. He'll attack us there. He'll attack our unity. But then that second line of attack we talked about a moment ago, he'll go for how we live. That is our new humanity. The book of Ephesians, the Christian Paul says, being found in Christ Jesus is to live like Jesus, we're to put off the old self and to put on the new self. Chapter four, verse 24, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. See, friends, this battle isn't just happening out there somewhere. This is not just a battle that is turned on during the set pieces in, in the Christian life, the set piece events, maybe on the mission team or at the open air or at the kids club on a Friday night. No, the battle, Paul says, is raging here. It's raging in our hearts. And the devil, he longs to bring us down and he is full of schemes to do so. He longs to put the old self back on. And old self, chapter four tells us, which is marked by impurity and greed, by anger and falsehood, by immorality and foolish talk. Anything the devil can do to hinder the outworking of our new humanity, he will try to do. So, friends, this is a battle that plays out. It plays out in our bedrooms and our boardrooms as much as in our Bible studies. This is a fight that unfolds on our smartphones and in our staff rooms, as well as on our special weeks of mission. Chapter six, verse 11, we must put on the full armour of God so we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. So we know where the devil's attacks are going to come from. The devil will go for how we love our unity. He'll go for how we live our new humanity. And rather than being complacent in the face of all of this, or rather on the other end of the extreme, just giving in in the face of all of this, Paul urges us not once, but twice, verse 11 and verse 13, to put on the full armour of God. Have a look again. Verse 11, put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, 
you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Let's take a look then at this armour. Verse 14. Stand firm then with the bells of truth buckled around your waist. Satan is the father of lies. John chapter 8 verse 44. So how do we resist his deceitful schemes? Answer by running to the one who is truth. When Satan says, you know what, you can let your hair down tonight. You deserve it. One night of immorality. It's not going to harm anyone. With the belt of truth, you see through the lie and you stand firm. When Satan says, do you know what? Reply to that grenade of an email you just received from a Christian brother or sister that was maybe a little bit harsh. Reply to that by by pouring fuel on the fire, by really giving them a piece of your mind because they have it come into them. Now, with the belt of truth buckled around our waist, we see through that scheme of the devil and we stand firm. And instead of firing back, we pick up the phone and we apologize for what we've done wrong and we show grace to our brother and our sister. So we stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around our waist. Second, again, in verse 14, we stand firm with the breastplate of righteousness in place. When you've fallen into sin and the devil draws alongside and he says, ah, you know, that's it now, isn't it? That's really it. Now you're done. There's no way back from this one. What do we do? We remember the Lord Jesus, that great warrior, Messiah, who we read in Isaiah 57, verse 17, put on righteousness as his breastplate. And we rejoice that we who are in Christ have now been rowed with his righteousness. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And so in that situation, what do we do? We confess our sin, knowing he is faithful and just and he will forgive our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. We, we remind ourselves through God's word that our standing with God is not dependent on what we have done, but on what Christ has achieved. And then we're to stand firm, verse 16, by taking up the shield of faith. And what a powerful piece of armour this is. Notice there at the end of verse 16, we're told with this, with the shield of faith, we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. There are plenty of them, aren't there? We've mentioned a few already. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on spiritual warfare, he talks about these arrows in Ephesians 6, and he describes, he describes them as being thoughts, imaginations, desires, passions, lusts, temptations, fiery trials. Again, we might say to ourselves, how on earth can we stand? How can we stand in the face of such an assault? Answer through living by faith, not by sight. You know, some of those arrows that Satan fires, they they won't look very threatening, actually, when they're on the way towards us. Remember, the devil is a schemer. He is a deceiver. Yet with with eyes of faith, we will see through his plans. We'll see that living for Jesus is more valuable than anything. And that what the devil offers to us is nothing. It's nothing compared to every spiritual blessing we already have in Christ Jesus. Chapter one, verse three. Then verse 17, we're to stand firm by taking the helmets of salvation. Here's another image from that passage we read earlier in Isaiah 59 and verse 17. 
it says he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. As Jesus, this great warrior, Messiah, went to Calvary as his hands and feet were nailed to the cross, as he took upon himself the punishment our sin deserved. So he won for us a great salvation. Praise God. And the picture here in Isaiah points to this Jesus, the conquering, victorious king crowned with the helmet of salvation. Yes, Satan can tempt us. He can wound us. He can cause us to stumble. But for those who are truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, he can never take our salvation from us. Jesus' victory is our victory. So we put on the helmet of salvation, his helmet. We fight with confidence and we fight, Paul says, never being complacent, putting on the full armour of God. Thirdly, more briefly, as we come to a close, Paul says we're to fight this battle on the front foot. We're to fight on the front foot. In any war, of course, defense is essential, isn't it? You've got to defend yourself well before you can attack. We've been thinking here in Ephesians 6 about the defensive armor that God gives to us. We're told to put it on so we can stand firm against the devil's schemes. Yet there's more armor for us here, isn't there, in this passage? Armor not just to help us defend, but to enable us to attack. We're to put on the full armor of God, Paul says. This is a battle that needs to be taken to the devil with a fight on the front foot. How do we do that? Verse 15, with feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Think of Isaiah 52, verse 7, quoted by Paul in Romans 10. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. We take the fight to the devil by going with the gospel, holding out his word of truth, holding out his word of life. And, you know, our going with the gospel not only gives people an opportunity to hear the good news and respond in faith. No, there's even more going on. Take a look at Ephesians chapter three and verse 10. His intent was that now through the church. The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Can we see the proclaiming of the gospel of grace as God's people? It shows the whole universe and everyone in it that the Lord reigns and that his purposes have been accomplished in Christ Jesus. So think about this. We fight on the front foot by sharing the gospel. It means when you're sharing the good news with a seven year old child on a beach in Scarborough or lays down or when you're opening the Bible with a colleague from work or when you're doing text to toasty in your student group when campus reopens. Never underestimate what is going on as you do that thing in God's strength. The battle in that moment is raging in the heavenly realms and the devil is being defeated. Praise the Lord. So we fight on the front foot by going with the gospel. And then verse 17, we fight on the front foot by taking the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We know, don't we, the Christian message is not just a formula or a mantra. It's not like we say, well, we, you know, we sign up to these particular things, then dot, 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 
this happens. Now, the word of God applied by the spirit of God is powerful. It's God's power for salvation for all who believe. There's a power here to bring people from death to life. You can read that in Ephesians 2 verse 5. And there's a power here to build the church. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. There's power to bring people from death to life. There's power here to see the church built. Yet I guess at times it doesn't feel like it, does it? In the context of a culture that thinks this, this is meaningless, God's word, even dangerous. And then in the face of an enemy that puts doubts in our minds about, is this really true? Maybe sometimes we feel like those protesters on the streets in Myanmar with a DIY shop hard hats on, staring down the barrel of a gun. Friends, as we read Ephesians, friends, don't believe a word of it. Don't believe a word of it. The power of God's word taught in the power of the Holy Spirit covered, as we heard this morning, in prayer on all occasions. This is what changes lives. This then is how we take the battle to Satan. It is foolishness in the eyes of the world. It makes no sense to those who don't believe in the Lord Jesus. But friends, it is powerful. This is powerful in God's plans for the universe. And Paul, verse 19, he really believes it, doesn't he? Take a look. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare declare it fearlessly as I should. Friends, we have every reason to be praying the same prayers. That as this battle rages, we might fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. So, yes. We are in a battle. Yes, the enemy is powerful. Yes, the stakes are high. But friends, we're to fight this fight. We're to wage this war with confidence. We're to fight never being complacent, putting on the full armour of God. And we're to fight it on the front foot. So friends, clothed in the full armour of God, let's go on fighting. Knowing that as the battle rages, the war is really won. All because of the Lord Jesus Christ and we are found in him.